Calvin had known he was there for years. Calvin could have turned him over any time he wanted to. Uh, Calvin had no personal vendetta, even though Servetus had gone out of his way to make life bothersome for Calvin. And Calvin actually, you know, when the time came to provide evidence to the Inquisition, Calvin really didn't want to do it. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of the most important figures in the history of the church, especially uh, during the 16th century, is none other than John Calvin. However, if we look at how Calvin has been received ever since the 16th century, he is a controversial figure. Uh, For some, Calvin is someone to praise, and for others, he's someone to curse. Some hold a very common belief, which is that Calvin was a a strict, cold, maybe even ruthless dictator, uh, one who controlled all of Geneva and even looked for opportunities to put heretics to death uh, every every chance he had. I I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations with individuals and this this exact uh, type of uh, belief or, or presupposition comes up and they want to Uh, They want to know why we would even discuss someone like John Calvin. Well, one of the uh, situations in Calvin's own life that is usually pointed to and despised is what is sometimes referred to as the Servetus Affair. It's the uh, example that many go to uh, to either uh, explain who Calvin was or perhaps to even dismiss Calvin uh, and uh, given his involvement in, uh, in, in the death and execution of Michael Servetus. Now, is this true? And what should we think of Calvin and his involvement? Was he, in fact, going around looking to put uh, heretics to death? Uh, what was his involvement, uh, positive or negative? How does the 16th century historical context shed light on this situation How does the church-state relations uh, help us understand some of the nuances uh, and even the process that led to the execution? And more on a more theological, maybe even a more personal note, what are we to think of Calvin himself? And where was Calvin's own uh, own stance? But where was his own heart at uh, when issues like this arose in Geneva? Well. These are some very difficult questions, whether it's historical or theological, very difficult questions to answer, and that is why I have asked Gary Jenkins, Gary, to join me on the Credo Podcast. Gary is uh, the John H. Van Gordon Professor in History, as well as the Director of the Center of Orthodox Thought and Culture at Eastern University. He's been there since 1994. He's the author of a number of books, uh, one of them called Liberal Learning and the Great Traditions, and a, 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 another book uh, called Calvin's Tormentors, Understanding the Conflicts that Shaped the Reformer. Gary, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. 
Matthew, it's my great pleasure. Well, I imagine that having studied and written on uh, Calvin's, uh, some, some of Calvin's nemeses, if we could call them that, or as you call them, some of his tormentors, I imagine someone like uh, Michael, uh, Michael Sorvitas is uh, top of the list uh, as you engage others. Uh, maybe before we get into all the controversial bits and pieces of this uh, affair, perhaps you could just start us off on the right foot and introduce us to, to who this individual is. Or maybe some of our listeners don't know. Who is uh, Michael Servetus? And, and uh, w- what are some of the, maybe you could talk to us about uh, his own historical context and his own contributions, not just in theology, but uh, in, in other fields like medicine. Yeah, so Servetus is a very, uh, he's a very enigmatic character because he doesn't fit into any real nice corner of the Reformation, whether even you look at him as an Anabaptist, which he certainly wasn't, um, or even among the anti-Trinitarians, he certainly did not hold to a great many things that the later anti-Trinitarians held to. But he was from, uh, he was from Spain, born about 1511, and basically had kind of a a peripatetic life uh, in his education. He was educated for a bit in Spain, uh, spent some time at Toulouse. He eventually attaches himself to one of the chaplains of the Emperor Charles V. He's actually at Charles V's coronation in Bologna in 1529. And so he led this kind of meandering uh, life from one place to another, and eventually, of course, breaks with... Catholicism, um, but never fully, as it were, landing in Protestantism. He spends some time uh, in the Rhineland uh, at Ball, among other places, and then at Strasbourg. He is a man of, of vast learning, but none of it is ever that focused. Um, so in this regard, we would call him an autodidact. He was, he was largely self-taught, and so there's there's gaps that we can't really fill in because we, we have to suppose where did he learn his Hebrew because he certainly knew Hebrew. Um, uh, Latin was something that he would have just had de rigueur. It was part of any, any young man's education in that, in that era. So he, he comes out of Spain, and some of his ideas, later ideas, particularly on the unity of God, he was an anti-Trinitarian, uh, some of his ideas on Unica, he may have well drawn from the Jews and the Moors of Spain. We're not always sure. But, you know, this was kind of his life. He was someone who was certainly not afraid to speak his con- uh, controversial mind. And this is ultimately what led him to be more or less told he was no longer welcome in, in Ball in uh, Switzerland or Basel in Switzerland. Uh, and then, of course, also in Strasbourg. And so from there, he makes his way to Lyon. And in Lyon, he spent most of his life. But by the time he gets to Lyon, he has given up his name because his name has now largely become uh, odious. And it was noted as odious both among the, uh, the Catholics and the Protestants. So that's kind of his background. He, his main interest, if we could say academically, his main interest seems to have been in medicine, and he was a practicing doctor, even though he ended up with no medical degree. So that's kind of the background of it. I mean, that's very partial 
But the most formative time of his life, doubtlessly, would have been in Lyon, even though by the time he gets there, he's already stated more or less the ideas that are going to get him into so much trouble, largely that God is not a trinity of eternal persons. Hmm. Uh, so this is what gets the Inquisition after him. This is what makes him persona non grata in both Protestant Basel, Protestant Strasbourg. And so when he gets to Lyon, which is a city that's a bit more, I don't want to say liberal in any sense, but they're far removed from the levers, let us say, of more rigorous Catholicism as represented at the University of Paris. So at Lyon, there are several figures who would have run afoul of even the doctors of Paris. And here I'm particularly thinking of the, uh, of the rather bawdy writer Francois Rabelais, who, while being, while being himself a doctor and also a friar, nonetheless, he's largely remembered for writing rather scandalous uh, uh, bits of work that um, didn't necessarily get him into trouble, but certainly didn't put him in, in good odor with all the powers that be theologically. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, I'll let you interject in case I, you know, overstated something or, or, or said too much about something. Well, I think what you just said a minute ago about uh, his stay in Lyon being uh, so so critical to understanding uh, both his reputation up to that point, but then also everything that's going to happen uh, in the next decades. I mean, maybe 1530 is a, is a good date to camp out on for a minute. And, uh, in 1530, sure. he uh, starts to become more and more vocal um, he, his, uh, in all kinds of ways. But, but you mentioned the Trinity, uh, and this is really where the controversy is going to, to, to turn a corner uh, as he's, questions, uh, say, Nicene uh, doctrine, uh, whether it's yes. Christology or, or the Trinity itself. Now, those who are listening may think, okay, well, he's just uh, anti-Trinitarian, uh, and, and maybe the presupposition that, that uh, is floating around in the back of our mind is, is you know, something like uh, English deism, at a later point, uh, but you, you've made an important qualification to say, well, actually, uh, it, there's a difference. There's a difference between what, um, what he's arguing and then what uh, 18th century deists would argue in their rejection of Trinitarian thought. Can you flesh that out for a second? What are some of those differences? Sure. So for Servetus, he basically sees... Um, he sees Jesus as a manifestation of the Word of God, that the Word of God is not the eternal Son, but that when the Word of God comes to rest in the man, Jesus, God adopts Jesus as his Son, right? So therefore, God is not eternally Father. He, as it were, becomes Father with this adoption of the Son, Jesus. And the point here is, is that God acts in history. Right? So that Christianity is still a revealed religion. Um, there are miracles attached to Christianity. God is actively working still in Servetus's mind for our redemption. Um, there's a very close tie between the activity of God in the world, God's spirit, which still should not be thought of as some separate person than the Father. Um, God's spirit is actively working in the world to bring about a reconciliation to him. And in this regard, 
uh, Servetus is, is in many ways just kind of inheriting more or less a great deal of Christian thought. And I don't want to say, oh, if he had thought about it longer, he would have rejected this, because it's, it's integral to him uh, that Jesus actually is the Son of God, and that Jesus is a very distinct, different creature than any of us. Uh, and in this way, Servetus is he's almost lapsing into polytheism, uh, in that he, he thinks Jesus should be worshipped, and that he's worthy of worship. Um, I mean, the word worship can be used in many different ways. We think, you know, English judges are sometimes called your worship and stuff like this, but this is not at all what he means, that Jesus is this being of such incredible uh, dignity because he is uh, anointed, as it were, by the word of God, by God's very logic, right? That by which God creates the universe. And so in this regard, God is actively working in history. God is using this adopted son, Jesus, to bring about redemption. All of this would have been rejected whole cloth by later English deism. And of course, by the deism we could associate with people in, in the Enlightenment, wherein God is just kind of this, uh, what we would call limiting concept, right? He's kind of the, uh, he's not the ghost in the machine, but since the deists could not explain where the universe came from, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't accept that matter is eternal. Um, for the deists, God creates the world, and then God, as it were, organizes the world, puts the laws of the world into motion, and, and then that's it, because if there are miracles, this is basically an assertion that somehow God made a mistake. And so therefore, you know, this type of deism, um, you know, people like John Toland in, uh, in, in 17th century England, uh, probably the most famous deist, and I, and I take this person as a deist, um, would, would have been Voltaire. And Voltaire had this treatise called We Must Take Sides, in which he basically identifies God not as any sort of personal being, which Servetus would have done, but as some sort of energy or force which creates the world, puts everything in motion, and therefore the whole world is governed by kind of a mechanistic uh, set of laws. So in this regard, Servetus is very different than what we would think of as later deists, or particularly now of Unitarians. Um, I mean, Servetus would have been horrified, quite frankly. He would have been horrified by modern Unitarianism. Mm. Um, he was not someone who was in any way any less uh, convinced of his own theology than, you know, anyone else in that day, be it Calvin or Luther or, you know, um, any, any prominent Catholic, Erasmus, right, on and on. So in those regards, Servetus is very different than what we think of as modern deism or modern Unitarianism. You know, one thing that I found so, uh, so, so intriguing but also so difficult as, as I was studying Servetus is on the one hand, he believes he is retrieving someone like Tertullian. Uh, mm -hmm. he, 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 though Tertullian is not the only one, uh, he's, he's going to someone like Tertullian um, and trying to articulate much of what you just said. But on the other hand, and, and from Tertullian, um, Servetus also 
and you've you've mentioned this too. He he tends to have a similar type of phobia, as you call it, um, of of pagan thoughts. So you know, Tertullian says, "What what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens?" and and uh, Servetus capitalizes on that. Uh, so, but then, um, as much as he is looking to certain church fathers, or, or I think it's debatable whether he's interpreting them correctly, but that's another matter. As much as he's looking to them, at the same time, uh, he really uh, reacts against uh, any type of, um, maybe we could call it metaphysics in Christology or Trinitarian thought, uh, whether it's defining what a person is, defining what, uh, what natures are or what they do or don't do. Uh, it's almost as if uh, he has this, this uh, allergy to, to anything he would consider to be you know, a type of medieval scho- uh, scholastic uh, philosophy. How, how does this, though, uh, how does this lead him to, is this a type of uh, biblicism in, on his part, or is that too simplistic? Um, yeah, that's a really good question, and there's certainly there's certainly a link between um, between humanist understandings because almost all the later anti-trinitarians are Italians, right? And so they they've all imbibed this very strong Renaissance notion of let us go back to the sources. Um, let us look directly at the text. Uh, let us lay aside, right, all the medieval glosses. Let, let us, and, and, and you have very, very prominent, very devout men, uh, John Colette in England, for instance, who basically thought they should bypass the medieval glosses and simply lecture directly on Paul and Romans, right? And so there can be this notion, and, and in some ways, even Calvin and Luther somewhat imbibe of this, but I think they, I think they quickly see that this is, this can lead them into problems. Um, that if we're going to, if we're going to say that only the Scripture gives us doctrine, does then only Scripture give us our vocabulary for doctrine? And you know, Luther mentions at one point he did, he did not like uh, certain words, um, and. Calvin actually avoids using the language of uh, hypostasis persona and things like this when talking about the Trinity. And, I mean, later he he goes out of his way to use them simply because of all the controversies that arise. And so for Servetus, it may well be that I only want that which comes directly from Scripture. And, And in some ways... You know, you, you picked up on something. In some ways, his reading of the ancient church is almost identical to later liberal Protestant reading of the early church, huh. right? I mean, to be honest, Michael Servetus would probably have burned Dan Brown at the stake, um, <laughs> right? Because, uh, I mean, Brown is, just, Brown is just a caricature, but in some ways liberal Protestantism, right, Harnack's whole idea... Um, about the Hellenization of the Church in the 4th century. And, I mean, all of this, of course, has been wildly exploded. There's mm-hmm. a very good book by Yaroslav Pelikan called Christianity and Classical Culture, which looks at how, um, you know, the great Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzus, Basil Caesarea, 
how their employment of the language taken from the academy um, was simply used in order to defend the Christian faith, which they had already inherited from people before them. And so Servetus's eschewing, right, is almost visceral hatred of this language, uh, in one way echoes back to the humanism, right, that had proceeded in the Renaissance, which, by and large, the Renaissance was not out to get rid of this language. They stood against scholasticism as a method, not necessarily scholasticism as a theology. Uh, and in this regard, Servetus's disdain of, let us say, non-biblical terminology, um, at least early, right? So in 1530, 1531, um, this is really what characterizes him. But ultimately, he, he sets this aside, and this is why Lyon becomes uh, far more formative in him, right? If he had just disappeared, right, to Lyon and lived his life happily working for the printers, he probably would have died there in complete obscurity. Um, but there are changes there that happen. And of course, like most people, when you find something new in theology, well, you've just got to talk about it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, one other factor that, uh, is, is so telling is, you know, if you, if anyone's read the 16th century and the, the age that the reformers are, are living in, uh, you know then that eschatology is a significant factor. Maybe the reformers don't mention eschatology as a word or, or even a concept very explicitly, but it but it's a very. Uh, you think of Luther, for example, and how uh, at first, very early on, Luther is trying to uh, you know plead with the Pope and and uh, you know appeal to the Pope of you know well surely if he knew what was going on with these indulgences well. But but it's not long until Luther turns and, and starts to, to say uh, Antichrist. Um, well, when we look at someone like... Uh, so, so all that to say eschatology is a significant factor in how someone like Luther or, or others, even if they're not reformers, how they understand their times. When we look at um, Servetus, uh, that's the case as well. I, I, I noted one at one point where you you uh, bring to the surface how, uh, for Servetus, he believes that uh, the, the reign of the Antichrist has, it didn't start in, in his day, it's been in existence, but it's interesting that he goes back to Nicaea and puts his finger on the Council of Nicaea and says, okay, here's, here's where we start to see its origins. So I found that telling at, at the very least. Now, maybe we can transition uh, from uh, Servetus himself to Servetus' engagement with Calvin. Uh, right. Because typically when the story's told, we jump right to the, the end of the story where, he's ex where, where Servetus is executed. Um, however, many may not know this, but uh, far before that point, early on, in fact, there is correspondence, even an attempt at a meeting that fails between Calvin and him, can you maybe, and, and maybe you could touch on, a little bit on how, how does their relationship begin and where does it, where does it actually go wrong? I have in mind here, you know, when, when uh, Servetus starts to read Calvin's Institutes and then sends them back to him, maybe you can touch on some of these very unique and important 
historical points. Right. So this all goes back uh, at least to 1536. And in 1536, Calvin had been um, traveling uh, Italy and then into uh, western Switzerland uh, in Baal is where he actually gets the first edition of the Institutes printed in early 1536. And it becomes obvious to him that he, he basically is going to have to uproot his life, right? So he's been traveling, but now he goes back to France. He goes, actually goes back to Paris, as it were, put his affairs in order, because um, he's leaving France. And at some point or another, and, and at this point in 1536, Servetus is in Paris. He's there studying medicine. And there seems to have been some way or another that they contacted each other. And it seems that the impetus came from Servetus, that he's read the Institutes, he wants to talk to Calvin, how he got in contact with Calvin, right? All of this is, is, is a big secret. Um, and so in 1536, um, there's this, seeming clandestine meeting set up and Servetus doesn't show. And, and Calvin basically points this out years later at, you know, at the risk of my life, I, you know, I kept this appointment. Um, and so. Why does Calvin say, why, why, sorry to interrupt you, but why does he say no, no. at that point at the risk of my life? Maybe you can explain to our listeners what, what is that stake for him? Right. So, Calvin is Calvin had already been um, singled out following following uh, Nicholas Cope's uh, uh, Nicholas Cope was the rector of the University of Paris, but he was also an evangelical. That was the term they were being used at the time, and he had delivered a rather Protestant sermon at the convocation for uh, back I think it was in 1534, and this stirred up a hornet's nest, and people were pointing the finger at Calvin. Calvin was the one who had written this. Um, Calvin ends up having to leave Paris. He spends some time with Louis Dutillet, uh, and then eventually he and Dutillet travel abroad. Um, and by 1536, Calvin has put the finish to his first edition of the Institutes. It's not a long text, but it is printed, and it is very well received. Right. So now suddenly his name is pronouncedly, mm. I am Protestant, pronouncedly, right. I stand with the evangelicals. And so going back to Paris means, you know, he, 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 he's as it were running back there with a mark on his forehead, as it were. And while there's no sort of um, bill of attainder against him, as it were, there's no warrant for him. All the same, he, he, he is now knowing Going back is not the smartest thing, but it's something that I do have to do. He collects his brother. Um, he puts the affairs of his household in order. And quickly he's leaving, right? Um, and he's actually, he actually goes out of his way. Um, he wants to go to Strasbourg. Um, but the French armies and the imperial armies are in a way blocking the road. And so for some reason he heads all the way south and goes to Geneva. And so in, in 1536... Calvin is already realizing I can no longer stay in France. So this is what it means that at the peril of my life, 
I was keeping this appointment with you, right? I was detaining myself from other things so that I could stay and talk to you. Mm. We've been talking to Gary Jenkins about John Calvin and Michael Servetus, but let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry content. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. We are back from our break and ready to return to a very controversial issue over John Calvin and Michael Servetus. Now, when when he uh, revisits that that whole conversation, uh, all of this then leads to, you know, as Calvin's uh, sort of remembering uh, that that first would-be encounter, all of this leads to uh, it's that that tipping point in which it goes from a dialogue um, innocent enough, I suppose, but uh, it, it then turns into a very critical dialogue, and uh, Servetus is uh, very critical of, of Calvin's institutes. Uh, why exactly? And, and you know, we've we've mentioned already some Trinitarian issues here. Uh, that set the two apart, but but is there also maybe uh, an aggressiveness on um, on Servius's part uh, towards the re- reformers or the Reformation as a whole? Yeah, it's it's difficult to be. Well, I I try not to be. It's actually not difficult to be a psychological historian. Right. Um, but I try not to be, because it's also very dangerous to be a psychological historian. And so to kind of reach into what was motivating Servetus to, to go after Calvin. Now, it's obvious that by the time he takes up his correspondence with Calvin, uh, 1547 uh, to 1553, a little onward, um, or even, even before that, that what is happening is uh, Servetus is basically, as it were, confronting Calvin in his thought. And by this time, um, Luther has passed on. Um, Melanchthon is still alive, but of course, many of the others have already uh, died and gone on. And so, and also Calvin is easily seen as one of the most prominent of the reformers. And Servetus takes up this correspondence with him from Lyon and whether, whether he had done so sincerely, like, was he actually looking for the truth, or was he merely, you know, as it were, doing something just for argument's sake? Uh, it, it actually seems far more to be the latter, right? Mm-hmm. That he's trying to convince Calvin, that he knows better, Calvin does not, and Calvin needs to learn. Uh, there is a seemingly a rather strong element of narcissism and I think in some ways this actually goes back to what you had just talked about earlier, 
that there's this apocalyptic sensibility about Servetus, mm. that somehow he stands as, you know, the apex of God's working in the world, right? He's, as it were, the incarnation of the Archangel Michael, ready to usher in some sort of great apocalyptic moment. And Servetus seems absolutely convinced of this. I mean, this is delusional on stilts. But all the same, that he would then take Calvin's Institutes, which Calvin graciously sent to him, books were not cheap, um, that he marks it up and sends it back, right? I think that this speaks to, as I wouldn't say a death wish in any way whatsoever, but it does speak to the fact that Servetus had almost an invincible ignorance on his part. Um, I don't know if I wouldn't even say an invincible ignorance, as much as such a sheer haughtiness um, that uh, that it certainly would come across as almost invincible ignorance. Mm. So I I hope this more or less answers what you're what you're getting at. No, and like you said, it's, sometimes it's difficult to know, but but I think w- what you just said is very insightful because as a good historian, you start to ask those questions. Well, why is it that he sends it sends the institutes back and in this manner? Uh, those are questions that sometimes we can answer, sometimes we can't. But in this case, um, you may, I think you may be onto something. And it certainly, the, the closer you get to his arrival in Geneva, the more and more you begin to, to sense not just the, theo- the theological issues, but like you're talking about some of the, the personality of the man. Uh, likewise, we do with Luther, right? Uh, when we read Luther, we're not just learning his theology, but we also begin to sense, you know, what was Luther like and, and why is he doing certain things? Sometimes he tells us, sometimes he doesn't. Now, with, with, with uh, you know, in this case, with Calvin, though, uh, before we get to Servetus's arrival in Geneva, uh, he is arrested prior to that point, um, and uh, it seems as if his his sentence is sure, his his death is is or burning in the stake that this is guaranteed, um, and something's going to go wrong. He's going to escape and, and get out of it. Before we get to all that, though, maybe you could just explain, and we could just take a parenthesis here. Uh, this is a very different situation than than we are used to today. Uh, why is it that in the 16th century you could have someone who holds to a heretical theological belief, but nonetheless be arrested by the civil authorities and and in some cases even put to death? Yes. Uh, the the, sh- the short answer is that. Um, while there is this kind of general understanding that the state, I mean, in, in, in short, which is going to be very difficult to do, but in short, um, everybody agreed with Aristotle that, you know, man was by nature a creature of the polis. That is, we were naturally built for community and that communities, whether the, you know, your neighborhood, whether your city, or most importantly, your family, were fundamental to life. And therefore, what we think of as the, the highestly organized form of this, right, this form of the pulse, the state, um, the state also served as something that was natural to us. It was, as it were, God-given. It's built into the creation. And if you look at the Middle Ages, 
Thomas Aquinas in his book on kingship, he, he asserts that the goal of the king, the goal of the kingdom of, we'll use the word the state, that's actually a more modern term, but the goal of the state is the same as the goal of the church. Now, the means of getting to this end, which is the kingdom of God, are completely different, right? Uh, the state exists to bring peace, to bring order, and therefore the state in many ways is a servant of the church, even though the state has the allegiance of the church in all temporal affairs. And so when we come to the Reformation, what we actually find is an even closer binding in, in many of the minds of the people, less so in Calvin, less so in Calvin, but in, in Luther, for instance, uh, the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Now, this, of course, had always been taken to mean not only father and mother, but also your community, right? Uh, and, and, of course, your local parish priest, your bishop, all this. Luther makes it almost emphatically, your father and your mother is, of course, your father and your mother, but beyond that, it is your local prince. And so Protestantism early on strongly allied themselves with the local magistrates. Calvin, in some ways, wanted to somewhat separate that. He was not as given to that, and some people actually accuse Calvinists of being more akin to Catholics in this than to other Protestants. But, for instance, in uh, Zurich, there was a very close link between the city magistrates and the city ministry. And, and, and indeed, in Geneva, there was as well. And so, in this regard, the magistrates were protectors of the church, and it was all and it was agreed on all sides, and you can see this in many different people, uh, reformers writing, and as well as Catholics, they all recognized that a change of faith necessitated a change of law, and therefore differences in faith were not merely private matters. These were things that struck at the very foundations of civil society, and uh, if we just look back at uh, 1536 and the Anabaptist kingdom in Munster in Westphalia, this was seen as so horrible that it actually, this was probably like the first ecumenical uh, gathering ever. It was a joint army of Lutherans and Catholics that stormed the city, um, mm. that both the Catholics and the Lutherans saw this as such an incredible breach of society and protocol that they had to be suppressed. And so in this regard, that Servetus was arrested by Catholic authorities in Lyon and then, of course, by the magistrates in Geneva. This is completely unsurprising, or it should be unsurprising. I mean, to us, it seems like, why? what, what is going on here? Why, why didn't they ever think about separation of church and state? So in, in this regard, Servetus' arrest was, he would have been arrested anywhere. Mm. He would have been arrested anywhere. Well, this brings us to uh, maybe the, the million or billion dollar question. Um, you know, he, he's in Lyon, he's, he's arrested, uh, he, he escapes. Uh, it seems as though he, he has this opportunity where he, he jumps off uh, the roof of, of a garden outhouse um, and, and, and somehow escapes and, uh, you know, they he's gone but they're going to you know express their dis- they're they're condemning him anyway so they're they're going to uh, burn an effigy and uh all this sort of thing but 
But then the, un, the craziest thing happens. He escapes, and for some reason, he goes to Geneva. Now, you just mentioned a minute ago, I think you're exactly right, that it, it seems like, given his theology, given not just his theology, but some of his, his political, uh, the way he's you know, agitated or irritated certain political uh, politics of his day, given all that, it, 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 no matter where he, he would have gone, uh, he, he's in trouble. I mean, he, he's, uh, he, he's going to be hunted, uh, he's going to be turned in, that sort of thing. But, but given his interaction with Calvin and others in Geneva who clearly don't, don't agree with what he's saying, why in the world do you think he would go to Geneva after his escape? Yeah, I, I can only conjecture. And basically, it, it seems that um, by this time, by this time in the life of Geneva, Calvin is very much, Calvin's very much put to it by the local, uh, for lack of a better term, the local patriots, right? The local native people of Geneva, who in the early 1530s had gone through a long struggle, many of them had been put to death, in an effort to throw off uh, their local Catholic bishop, who was basically their governor in the name of the Duke of Savoy. And in throwing off, as it were, these foreigners, uh, namely Savoy, they threw themselves at, uh, at the city of Basel for aid. And so in this regard, Geneva sought its own independence. But now, of course, they became dependent upon Basel. Um, now, Basel is a German-speaking city, but they send, ultimately, French-speaking ministers to Geneva. And ultimately, the ministry of Geneva, first under Pharrell and then under Calvin, right, these people aren't Genevans, they're French, right? And actually, still in the mind of the French, Geneva is part of Germany even though it's a French-speaking city. And so there's always this tension. Um, Calvin, the Frenchman, the Genevans. But there's also the tension in the fact that Calvin is an austere man. I mean, there's just no getting around that. He wanted banishment. I mean, playing cards were banished. Calvin wanted to shut down taverns and instead have, like, wine houses where people would sit around and talk theology. Dancing was prohibited. I mean, people were prosecuted for dancing. And many of the Genevans resented this. And by the early 1550s, this was all coming to a head. And I think that perhaps Servetus had known of this and thought this is the most opportune time to confront Calvin. Um, now, this is all coincidental suppositions on my part, but... This, this may well have been why he went there. There were other ways he could have gone to Italy, but this, this was one of the ways to go. The thing is, he actually stays there several days, and he ends up going to church and is recognized by people from Lyon. Oh, that's the Villeneuve. That's, that's this man who had been arrested, right? Um, and this is in an age before the, Instagram. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He would, he would never have gotten away anywhere. Yeah. Yes. Forget, forget <laughs> about hiding now. You'd have to go to the Arctic to, to hide now. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, but yes, so he, he ends up going there, and of course the, the whole thing is, Cal, Calvin's enemies in Geneva were just as horrified of Servetus as more or less Calvin was, mm. right? They were the ones who actually became the really austere people in this whole episode. So that raises another question, and it's this. What exactly, you, you just a minute ago, you laid out very carefully and helpfully the the, the church-state relation and how actually it's not as simple as we tend to think. It was is more complicated than that, and there, even among the reformers, there's some differences. But given all that, um, when we look at the arrest here uh, leading eventually to, to his execution, uh, how, how would you describe Calvin's involvement or his lack of involvement at certain points? I mean, sometimes people will, will look at this situation and just, you know, say something like, well, Calvin was just, you know, putting a heretic like Servetus to death. Uh, that seemed a bit simplistic uh, because Calvin's not, you know, he, he's not a civil uh, leader. He, he's a pastor. And yet at the same time, though, it's not to excuse Calvin because Calvin does have some involvement. What, what is his involvement exactly? Right. Yeah, so any any of Calvin's real involvement in this is ultimately, I, I mean, Calvin does have a hand in all of it, but it's also, Calvin's not a, at this point, Calvin's not a citizen of Geneva, so he he's still an emigre, but it is under Calvin's instigation that when Servetus is recognized, he is arrested, um, and I don't know that it was under Calvin's insistence, right? Because no one was there was interested in, in letting Servetus walk away. Because by now, um, he's already published his most well-known book, The Restitution of Christianity. And in the Restitutio, as it's known, in the Restitutio, he calls for the violent overthrow of both Protestant and Catholic regimes. Mm. So he's preaching uh, a revolutionary ideology. And so when he shows up, Calvin has him arrested, um, and Calvin becomes the chief theological prosecutor. And Calvin lays out these indictments. Interestingly, um, Calvin lay, one of the, one of the uh, charges Calvin lays out is that Servetus denies the historicity of the Bible, because Servetus had published in a geography, he had written a preface uh, that basically identifies it. The Holy Land is a kind of a desert place. It's really not this land flowing with milk and honey. And to this, this, this horrified Calvin. And um, I, I bring this out because, you know, there, there are many people, there, there are all sorts of modern problems in thinking about inerrancy, infallibility in the scriptures, things like this. And so people will go running back to Calvin. Why Calvin didn't believe in inerrancy? And I'm just like, well, you know, if you had actually preached these things in Calvin's Geneva, you might be in the cell with Servetus. Right, um, right. Because Calvin was very explicit that this was, you know, this was something not to be taken lightly. This yeah. undermined the authority of the Scriptures. And so, I mean, but the biggest ones were he opposed the baptism of infants, which apparently Servetus didn't, um, but Calvin had lumped him in with the Anabaptists. But, of course, the most obvious one is that he had blasphemed the Trinity. Mm. And so Calvin is the chief pastor. In one sense, this is actually Calvin's responsibility to do this. 
And so it's not surprising that Calvin does this. It would have been very surprising had Calvin not done this. He was the chief pastor. Uh, I think that the more telling aspects of the whole affair is actually what happens before Servetus is ever uh, arrested in Vienne, and that is Calvin had known he was there for years. Calvin could have turned him over any time he wanted to. Mm. Uh, Calvin had no personal vendetta, even though Servetus had gone out of his way to make life bothersome for Calvin. And Calvin actually, you know, when the time came to provide evidence to the Inquisition, Calvin really didn't want to do it. Now, on the one hand, he seemingly doesn't want to do it because he he says he doesn't believe in prosecuting heresy by the by the fire, um, and but he also doesn't want to aid the Inquisition. Um, but whatever it was, Calvin was reluctant to turn over the letters that ultimately became the things, the basis of Servetus's uh, arrest in Lyon. And so when all of this happens in Geneva, this is more or less just due course. This is, there, it really could not have happened any other way. Um, and so Calvin becomes the chief theological prosecutor because he is the chief minister of the city. Um, and he's easily recognized as the theological uh, expert within Geneva. So it is, it is his task to do it. And in this regard, it's, it's not right to think of him as a prosecutor in the way we think of prosecutors, but it may be better to think of him as kind of, let's say, the medical examiner in this regard, called by the prosecution, right, to basically show what it is that Servetus is, is holding that is an error. That's a, that's a helpful way of putting it, uh, medical examiner, uh, almost a, a type of expert witness um, that, that nuances the situation uh, in an important way. Did, did Calvin visit with Servetus while he was in prison awaiting execution? And what was that like? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we know a little bit about it. That's where, that's where we first hear um, Calvin again says to him, or, or Calvin says to him, you know, we had this appointment back, you know, 17 years ago that you did not keep. I've not been out to get you. I've always wanted the best for you. And uh, so in this regard, um, we, we also know that Calvin tries to convince Servetus of his heirs. And uh, Servetus is, is intractable, of course. Um, so we don't know a lot about it. Um, but we do know that Calvin was rather insistent. Uh, Calvin, and, and, and this, this paints two different pictures of Calvin in one sense. So Calvin does try to, as it were, win Servetus over, right? Convince him of the truth of the faith. Uh, at the same time, Calvin, Calvin goes out of his way because there's basically, it's, it's, it's a foregone conclusion that Servetus is guilty of, of what he believes, right? They don't provide him a lawyer, right? They, um, and they write a letter to the other churches of Switzerland, basically asking them, what should we do? Calvin writes to all the ministers of these churches, basically telling them, you should basically ask for the harshest, harshest of penalties, right? Um, don't let our magistrates off the hook. And 
responses come back, and when the sentence is read, right, uh, that you will be burned at the stake. This is actually a. Um, this is this is actually uh, as, as best I could put it. Um, this is like a bridge way beyond what Calvin had thought. I mean, Calvin, in all probability, Calvin would have wanted Servetus executed, um, especially if he was not going to repent. Now, that's also up for debate in the sense that previously people had denied the Trinity. They had just been banished. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, people had been burned at the stake, but they had been burned at the stake for other crimes, sodomy, for example. Um, So there had not been any heretics burned at the stake in Geneva. Um, I think I'm about 99.9% correct in my thinking on this, but there had not, right? And Calvin actually wanted him executed by the sword. Right? And Yes. And so when, when Servetus cries for mercy, Servetus is basically saying, don't execute me in this way. Right? right? Okay. And this apparently, up, I mean, this apparently upset Calvin so much that this was going to happen to Servetus. Mm. He, he sends a rather quick message to Pharrell and Neuchatel Please come and attend to Servetus because I, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And by that, does um, he mean he he just can't can't bear that that this is the process that he's that he's actually going to go go to death in this manner? I can't say for sure, but that seems to be what is implied. That okay. seems to be what is implied, um, and. Uh, I mean, other people ultimately um, would have met their deaths. So there was there was a later uh, Valentin Gentili um, who basically faced execution, but by the sword. And so ultimately Gentili got off. But 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 I mean, this was in a sense um, this was in a, this was in a sense. I mean, this was this was the most horrible form of death. I mean, this would have been. I mean, I mean, we still in the United States we still have the death penalty, um, and you know, basically, there's always the sense that we oh we need to make it more humane, more humane, more humane, more humane, and there was always a sense in which that was done. I mean, even if you think about something like the guillotine, the guillotine was actually something generally reserved for. The nobility. It was the quick and painless death. Um, burning at the stake was a, a, an immense sign of ignominy. It was a sign that this person deserves to die slow and painfully, mm. um, and and in the way that everybody would know about. It. And of course, everybody does know about it now. Right. I mean, there were many other people who were burned at the stake, particularly in England, particularly in France. Um, but but Servetus becomes because Servetus is so out of the blue. I mean, there were a few other people who were executed in Geneva, but Servetus becomes the main one, and it's always laid at the foot of Calvin. Calvin, I mean, doubtless if, if he had just been beheaded, it still would have been no, notorious. Mm-hmm. But this just becomes even more drastic, as it were. Yeah. As we finish up and close, I, I want to to introduce one final. Uh, quotation, one final question with it, 
And that is uh, when he is sentenced to death and when he actually goes to the flames, uh, he chooses his words very carefully, and they are it, the words he chooses, uh, Servetus's words, are very telling. Uh, his last words recorded are, Jesus, son of the eternal God, have mercy on me. Maybe you could finish right. up our conversation and just explain why is that? That sounds, uh, just on the surface, that sounds at first glance to be very spiritual, but, but why is the, the, the order of the words there so important, and, and what does it not say? Right, right. Yeah, so those words are recorded by, um, by Guillaume Farrell. So Farrell writes these. He actually writes out, uh, in his own copy of Servetus' book, he writes out in hand, the events of that day. And, Sir, and uh, Pharrell notes, right, Servetus says, uh, Jesus Christ, son of the eternal God, have mercy on me. And Pharrell writes, had he moved the adjective, mm-hmm. right, because he doesn't call Jesus eternal, right? God is eternal, right? right? And he doesn't even say the eternal father because He's not eternally Father, right? He's just eternally God mm. who has adopted this man, Jesus. And so ultimately, Pharrell is saying, right, he has put his faith in a creature, right? This is the basic argument go- going back to the very beginnings of the Trinitarian controversies, right? Athanasius, right, to Arius. Are we to put our faith in a creature to save us, or, or is our salvation from God? Right, And so in this regard, Pharrell is just noting that Servetus has just taken his stand with those who basically think that a creature can save us. And so this is why it was, it was so telling, right, what he says. And, I mean, it is, it is a pitiful thing and, you know, a, a horrible thing. I mean, I, I have no love for Servetus's theology. I have no love for Servetus' radicalism, his narcissism, uh, his sense of confrontation. Uh, but at the same time, you know, this, this, this does in one sense become the great point about the cause of religious liberty and toleration, mm. which are two different things. Yeah. Um, and, and I do treat that elsewhere in the book. But, you know, this was not, this was not, in one sense, it wasn't almost an oddity in Geneva, but it was not an oddity in the rest of Europe. And many of the other reformers, including some we might think of as, well, let's say a bit more wishy-washy than Calvin, Philip Melanchthon writes to Calvin, in in essence congratulating him on doing the right thing with regard to Servetus. And, you know, many of the other reformers were like, this is what you should do. This is what should have been done. I mean, maybe not burn him at the stake, but he should be executed. He was irreformable. And so, in this regard, Calvin has, for whatever Calvin did, right, I don't hold Calvin blameless, but for whatever Calvin did, Calvin was not acting any differently than any other, I won't say any other 16th century man, uh, but with very few, vanishingly few exceptions. He did something that everyone else in that century would have done. And so I think in one sense, 
I mean, I always get on my students when they just, you know, they gasp in horror, at whatever horror from the past, right? And so I always get on them. I say, well, that's not being very multicultural of you. Are you judging them? <laughs> and uh, in, in this regard, yes, we, in, in one sense, yes, we should judge, right? We should judge. But at the same time, we also have to realize that these people lived in their centuries, they held certain things which almost made this type of action inevitable, right? Their notion of what the state was for. Um, and in this regard, I, I mean, we'd almost have to say, we can just look into the 20th century. I mean, we don't even have to look into the 20th century. We can look at the French Revolution, right? Those people who, who were insufficiently revolutionary, right? They were put to the guillotine. Mm. And we can just look at the killing fields, we can look uh, in Nazi Germany, but even more so in Stalin's Russia, um, Mao's China, right? These people betray history. They need to be done away with. They're insufficiently revolutionary. They're insufficiently Soviet. And so um, none of this has gone away. And I think that uh, I, I think it's even telling in our own day, um, right? I mean, we, we see all of this stuff happening on campuses, you know, vitriol against free speech, things like this. Um, I mean, I, I'm i not telling anything that's not unknown. I had a colleague at Eastern University. He took students out into the quad and burned books. And I said to him, why did you burn books? Oh, some ideas don't deserve to exist. Mm. Um, but, but that's not how you fight, right? Bad ideas. As a matter of fact, that's the worst way to fight bad ideas because if i'm a student i'm going out to find that book um, <laughs> you want to uh, read it and, now. Uh, yeah I, I don't know too much about my students now but anyway maybe that's what i should do to get them to read their <laughs> textbook maybe burn one or something but um um but yeah so i mean this uh, it, it, it's a sad episode but it is an episode that is completely understandable given the world in which they mm. lived We've been talking to Gary Jenkins, who is a professor of history at uh, Eastern University. Uh, I would encourage our listeners, if you, if you haven't read anything by Gary, uh, I would encourage you to uh, go pick something up, uh, especially some of his work on Calvin, uh, just a, a superb historian, and uh, his work on not just Calvin, but uh, Calvin's context and some of his, his tormentors. Gary, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Oh, it has been my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.